Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Miller, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. I'm so glad that you decided to make grace a part of your weekend. We really do want to be a church that reaches the world um, for Jesus, not just to reach the world for Grace Community Church's sake, but to reach the world for Jesus. And we, we plan, we hope to do that by intentionally equipping and sending disciple makers. So uh, you will see some new words behind me on the wall here, reach, send, equip. That's what we want to be about in three words, reach the world for Jesus, intentionally equipping you to go out and to be sending disciple makers. And so uh, we get to do that in a lot of ways, but ultimately uh, this time on a Sunday morning is one of the ways where we're aiming to intentionally equip you. And we're in the middle of a series right now called What is Worship? And so we want to equip you to be worshipers of God and to really understand, to know what that means to, to have a meaningful time in worship and not just singing. Worship, we talked last week isn't about just the songs we sing. It's not just about um, being in this room, which we call the worship center. It's not just about coming to one of our two worship services at 9 or 1045, but worship is so much bigger than that. It's a lifestyle. It's a mindset. It's an attitude that we have. And so as we introduced that last week, that concept that worship is so much bigger than this, than just what we do here we sent you out. We said, go and worship this week. I'm curious, how many of you, you honestly spent the week just on cloud nine worshiping the Lord? Anybody? Show of hands. A couple of brave people. Yeah. Two or three of them. Awesome. How many of you came in here this morning just amped, ready to worship, ready to just be in the throne room of God? Yeah. Awesome. Good. Here's the reality. Um, when our children were up here earlier dancing and singing, I love that. I love that. I had to like kind of clear some space from my wife because I was prepared to worship this morning, not necessarily to dance. I didn't say that. Okay. Um, when, when Sharon said, we're going to dance, I'm like, oh, I need to take pictures. So then I don't have to dance. Right. So I pull out my phone and I hop on the church, uh, Instagram and I take videos and pictures. That's how I get out of dancing. Maybe you, uh, do the same little trick for you there. Um, honestly, like maybe you, you just came this morning and you were like, I am so excited to just join with my brothers and sisters and to be in the presence of God. You're just like so pumped to be here. I hope that's your mindset. I hope that's your perspective. Jesus in John 10 verse 9, I want to point this out. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, if you need one, you can put your hand up and one of our awesome ushers will get you one. But in John 10, Jesus himself is speaking and in verse 9, we see him say this phrase. He says, I am the door. Now you might think that's a little odd. Why would Jesus say he's the door. He goes on to explain, if you, you read the rest of the passage, which we're not really going to camp there today, you see Jesus explain this idea that through him we have right relationship with God, that through him we are made right with God, that through him we can worship the Lord, his heavenly Father. We become sons and daughters of God. Louis Giglio puts it this way. He says, you have to come through the door, being Jesus. You have to come through the door, being Jesus, before you can come through the door, that door, this door, in this room, or else true worship is never going to happen. Let me say that again because some of you are kind of like, huh? 
You, you have to come through the door, Jesus. You have to have a relationship with him before you can come through this door of this building in order to have an encounter of true worship. True worship is never going to happen if you come into this place expecting our team, these people that are flawed, that are sinful, to lead you into some emotional, energizing time where you can worship, where you have a connection to a song. That's really not what true worship is. True worship is where we have an encounter with the living God, where we're moved where we're changed, where we're transformed by his presence. You see, if you come through the door, this door, a a physical door, before you come through the door being Jesus, then you're going to need somebody to get up on the stage in order to energize you into some kind of experience. But if you reverse it, if you come through the door being Jesus, before you come into any place expecting to sing some songs and worship him, then you're already worshiping. When you come in, it doesn't matter where you go, your small group here, another church in the area, see the perspective shifts, it changes. This morning was my hope and prayer that I would be able to to teach us some principles that we can apply to any and every situation, that these principles are are rooted, they're based in in God's word, that they're biblical, that, that God created these principles just for us. It doesn't matter if you're a child. It doesn't matter if you're a a spiritual child. It doesn't matter if what stage of life that you're in, that these principles are biblical. And that's the first one, the the shift of our perspective of what worship is. That we've got to come through the door, being Jesus, before you can come through the door or else true worship is never going to happen. The second one, turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 84. We just sang a song called Better Is One Day. And now, that's an old song. Some of you are like, man, I, I loved Better Is One Day in 1984. I was three. <laughs> um, you're like, that song can just, if we never sing that again, I'm good with that. That's okay. I understand that context. I understand that's an old song. And yet, I specifically asked Sharon and the team, could you just please do that song? Because it's, it's scriptural. It's a principle that God teaches us. In Psalm 84, we see it. Verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. We don't know who the author of this psalm is. Some think it's David. But they, they say, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts, the house of the Lord to be in your presence. He says, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Does that represent you this morning? Or are you just kind of like, no, I'm good. I had a breakfast sandwich this morning, so I, I'm, I'm satisfied. I got my, my Haitian coffee from the cafe, so I'm feeling a little bolt. I, I'm good. Or honestly, are you? My, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. In verse 4, he says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. They don't have to come to a service to to praise him. They're ever praising. They never stop praising. And then he gets to verse 10. In verse 10, he says, better is one day in your courts, in your presence, God. Better is one day than a thousand elsewhere. I love that because, see, it's hard for me to really honestly 
sing that as a prayer to God. Because the reality, the truth is, I can think of about a thousand places that on most days, the end and why, I could, I could long to be Wrigley Field, <laughs> watching the Cubs dominate everyone. Some of you are like just being out in nature on the beach or in the mountains. I love that. And yes, it's true that that is where, for many of you, you connect with God at the beach, in the mountains, in St. Lucia, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, in different places, right? You would love to, to just spend a thousand days in Paris, right? There are things, if we're honest, that we would say, I, I would love to do those things. But if we really understand what the psalmist is saying, God, your presence, being with you, is so much better. It's incredible. And better is one day in your courts, with you, in your presence, than a thousand elsewhere. Nudge your neighbor and say, oh, this is going to be good this morning. Pastor Eric is on point. Tell him that. Seriously. <laughs> Pay attention. God's got something for us today. I'm convinced of that. Now, we're not even going to be in these passages. We're ultimately going to camp this morning in Daniel chapter 3. I told you that through this series, we're going to look at the Bible to see what it speaks about in terms of worship. Last week, we were in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5 which is the first reference, the first mention of the word worship, and it's in this crazy context. It's in this incredible story where we see this guy, Abraham, that, that he's waited for decades to have a son and that God made a promise to him and his wife, Sarah, that he would make him the father of many nations, that he would have many children. And Abraham said, how when I don't have a son? That was his biggest desire, and yet, when he did have a son with his wife, Sarah, they named him Isaac. And a few years later in Genesis 22, we saw this story where God asked Abraham in faith, would you go and sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, on the altar as a testament to your faith and your trust in me? And it says, Abraham gets up early the next morning. The first place where we see that word worship, Abraham says to his servants, stay here. I and the boy are going to go worship. And then we'll be back. And we, we gave you these three key words, seeing, surrender, and sacrifice. We talked about how Jesus, Isaac, is the, 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 the foreshadowing of Jesus who would be that sacrificial lamb for us, for our sins. Then in Romans 12, we ended with the, the idea that in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We talked about how worship is seeing, surrendering, and sacrificing. That Abraham saw God's promise, that Abraham surrendered his desires, that Abraham was willing to sacrifice everything in worship to the Lord. We talked about how worship is seeing God and responding to him in faith and obedience. Worship is surrendering yourself to God in adoration towards him. Worship is sacrificing everything we have to God because he's important. 
This morning we're going to see the same pattern played out in Daniel chapter 3. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3 if you would. And we're going to look at this incredible story of three guys who have new names. They're all Israelites. They're all Hebrew in nature. And they're in a place called Babylon. Babylon is, is one of the greatest cities in the world, and yet Babylon was known, it's notorious, as being one of the most godless societies that ever existed. You think New York City is bad. You think Washington, D.C. is corrupt. (laughs) Babylon was worse. And here are these three Hebrew boys who are trying to follow the Lord. They're trying to worship him. They're trying to be obedient to whatever God would ask them to do no matter what. And in Daniel chapter 2, the, Daniel, who's kind of buddies with these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel interprets this dream for the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, oh, king, you're so great, but here's what your dream that you had means. God's kingdom, ultimately, he talks about, is, is going to rule and reign, and your kingdom is going to come to an end. And he talks about this uh, in verse tw- 32. He talks about this statue that the king saw in this dream and how the head is made of gold. And he says, that's your kingdom. The chest, is, the arms are made of silver. Its belly and thighs are of bronze. Its legs are of iron and feet are of baked clay. And yet he talks about how all of this statue that the king sees in his dream will come to ruin. Well, that's kind of where we pick up in chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, after hearing this dream, he, he worships Daniel for giving him the interpretation of this dream. But then the king says, ah, the meaning of this dream is silly. It's kind of ridiculous. See, here's what I'm going to do. The king says, I'm going to build this gold image. The whole thing is going to be gold. Not just the head, like in what his dream was, the whole thing. So chapter 3, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. That's 90 feet tall. (laughs) 9 feet wide. Do you think the guy's got a, a, a reputation he thinks he needs to protect here? Oh, my goodness. 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And he set it up in the plain of Dura, the province of Babylon. He then, as if his... Pride and arrogance wasn't enough. He summoned these people, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, oh, and anyone else (laughs) to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So they all came and all the other people assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they all stood before it. Picture this sea of people probably millions of people standing, all maybe the tallest, like six foot six, in front of this 90-foot tall statue. The picture is unbelievable. Then in verse 4, the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, here's what you must do. You must fall down and worship the image that the king has set up. And, oh, by the way, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Hmm. Okay, then. 
Can you imagine being there? Imagine standing in this crowd of people and the king has set up this statue and he issues this decree. Suddenly Trump looks really good, right? Honestly, think about this. You, you're, you got this picture that's set up. The, what we didn't talk about last week was worship. The, the definition in Hebrew of worship, it means to kiss toward. It means to literally fall down before. You're giving your adoration. That, they use the same word. You're going to worship. You're going to worship this idol. Let's see what happens. Then in verse 7. The music starts playing and all the nations and the people of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Can you even imagine? I don't know. I have no idea what I would do in that moment. Would I bow down? Would I worship? What would be your response? It's easy to think in this kind of context, there's no way I would do that. And yet, this is in a very different culture from us. See, in our culture today, there are hundreds of thousands of people who gather around the God of NFL football. And we worship. We bow down when our teams win or lose. Musicians, we go to concerts. And we sing their praises of how great this band is or this artist is. We worship TV shows. We worship movies. We worship people. And are we willing to bow down and worship, to kiss toward God or man or things? That's the tension that we see here. In verse 8, it says this. At this time, some of the people, the astrologers, they came forward and, and they denounced these Jews, these, these Israelites, these Hebrew men, they said, King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your, your majesty issued a decree. We, we were right, right? When we, when we heard you say that everyone, no matter who they are, has to bow down and worship. And if you don't, they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. Right, king? And he's like, yes, that's exactly what I said. Well, oh, hey, um, there's these three guys in the back, oh yeah, you can see them? They're about a mile back. Yeah, you can see them because everybody's bowing down and they're still standing. So King, what do we do about this? Their names are, are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they pay no attention to you. In fact, they've turned their backs. Their arms are folded. One of their toes is tapping one of them has their hands over their ears, humming, la, 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 I can't hear you. It's not really what it says, but I'm imagining. <laughs> they say, your majesty, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image that you have set up. Verse 13, furious with rage, King Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the men were brought before the king, and King Nebuchadnezzar says to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Like, he's almost like, look at it. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's made of gold. <laughs> look at their response. This is beautiful. Look at this. 
Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. and He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, <laughs> that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. I love how they're like, they're like being defiant, but they're still trying to be respectful. <laughs> oh, king, we're not going to do what you tell us to say, your majesty. Right? Have you seen like when your kids do that? They're like trying to be obedient, but still be respectful or disobedient and still be respectful. There's three things that I, that I want to point out here. Look at their response. Look at, look at verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, they say this, number one, the God we serve is able. He is able. He can do anything. He is all-powerful. Look at what this says about their belief in God. They're not worried about their belief in the king or his power they're concerned about their God who is power, who is all-powerful. And they know this. It almost hints to the fact that they know that God is able to save them because they've seen it happen before. Seen. Worship. Last week we talked about the step. The first step is seen. Second, surrender. They say, our God will save us. They've surrendered themselves to their God, not to the king. They said, we won't bow down. We're not going to surrender to you. We've already lived a surrendered life. We've already had that moment of surrender to the living God. So they even say, we don't even need to defend ourselves. And so much so that they say, our God is able and he will is a whole other statement. Our God is able is one thing, but he will save us from your hand, O king, is something completely different to say. Because even if the king throws them in the fire, they're saved. They're not under his oppression anymore. And even if they stay, they say, we're not going to worship you. Our God will still save us because he's more powerful than you. He's bigger than you are. But then this third thought that they say, Verse 18, but even if he doesn't, even if, even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down. We still will not worship you. I love that. It speaks of their faith, of their sacrifice, that, that in life or death, they're willing to worship God and no one else. They see God. They've surrendered to him. They're willing to sacrifice everything. Same pattern as Abraham. Same as what Jesus does. Same as what we're called to. But I think we see this a fourth S here that helps us as a key to worship. The fourth S is submit. Submit. You see, they say, even if, even if, that's this idea of sacrifice in life or death. It doesn't matter. But what they go on to say is even if we will not worship you, we will not bow down. We will not worship anyone or anything other than our God. They are in saying that, 
they are living their lives submitted to God, shackled to him and him alone. See, there's a difference between surrender and submission. For many of us, we have at one point in our lives surrendered our life to God and said, God, I, I surrender. I stopped running. Maybe you had that, that moment at, at an altar call where you first heard the gospel. Maybe it was vacation Bible school. Maybe it was at a conference. And you surrendered. But you didn't submit. Ever watched a, a TV show where, like, the police are chasing the bad guy? And he, like, runs and ducks and hides in a building. And they say what? They say, come out. We've got you surrounded. Come out with your hands up. Right? And then the bad guy comes out with his hands up in an attitude of surrender. Yes? And then they handcuff him. And what usually happens? Have you ever seen the show Cops? <laughs> Once they get him handcuffs, then they still fight. They still resist. They still have to, like, carry them kicking and screaming to the car. Submission is this idea that, that we're willing, that we voluntarily place ourselves under the authority of another. Surrender is the act of, of giving up. It signifies that the fight is over, that we will no longer resist. And together in surrender and submission, I think we have this beautiful picture of what worship is, of the lifestyle of the attitude, of the mindset, of our hearts, of how we should live. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, maybe you memorized these verses as a child. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. In James 4, verse 7, James says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We're to surrender, yes. But we're to submit. We're to voluntarily connect ourselves with him. We see this happen. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 3 and verse 19. The king is so enraged by this. He's so mad. He he says he commands the, the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. And he commands some of his strongest soldiers in the army to come and tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them in the blazing furnace. So these men wearing robes, trousers, turbans, other clothes, they were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was urgent and the furnace was hot was so hot that the flames even killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to throw them into the furnace. Imagine this. The demonstration of power that the king thinks he has. And then as the king's looking, he sees the three men walking around, untied. And as he's looking even closer, he kind of squinting and looking because he's got to be far enough away so that he doesn't get burnt up too. And then he sees a, a fourth person unbound walking around in the fiery furnace. And it's the son of God. What's his response? <laughs> He's freaking out. <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar then, verse 26, approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most God, come out, come here. So they come out of the fire. 
and all the advisors, they look at them and they say, there's not even a hair on their head that singed, their robes were not scorched, they don't even smell like fire. What an incredible demonstration. Look at verse 28. Then the king said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. Man, not a crazy story to think about these three guys. I, I want to point out a couple of things here with these three, with, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. First of all, the, their, nev- their names are never mentioned independent of the others. Have you thought about this? Their names are never mentioned independent of the others. In, in other words, they need the iron that sharpens iron. They need people in their lives that love them the way that God loves them, that will speak truth to them the way that God would speak truth to them. We too are created in that same way. We need people to be in our lives to speak truth to us. Isn't it true that when, when you know you're in sin, you begin to isolate yourself? You begin to separate yourself from the people who will speak God's truth to you? You stop coming here? You isolate yourself. And you certainly don't want to go into the presence of God willingly saying, hey God, I'm here to worship you today. Would you speak to me? Well, you can speak to me about anything but that. That's really what we have in our minds. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had this attitude, this mindset. They lived this lifestyle that they didn't need to worship the image that the king had set up or the music that he was playing because they had already come through the door. Through God's door. Not King Nebuchadnezzar's door. They were already worshiping the one true God. They realized that better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. Than a thousand living in the tents of the wicked. That was their perspective. They realize that, that when you go through the fire, when you go through the trials and the tests of this life, that everything that's binding you is loosed. Isn't that incredible? Picture to see. When you go through the trials of this life, everything that's binding you is loosened because of the fire. But we are not touched. And yet, do you worship him because of that in those moments? Do you you worship him? Do you have that even if mindset? God, even if I don't get this raise, I will still worship you. God, even if the doctor gives me a different report than I'm expecting, I will still worship you. God, even if that, that relationship that ended isn't reconciled, I will still worship you. Do you have the even if mindset to worship because you've seen God work, you've surrendered your life to him, you've sacrificed, your life is a living sacrifice. That verse, Romans 12, 2, which we talked about last week, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular, 
to God. We need people in our lives. If you're not a part of a small group, oh my goodness, you gotta get in a small group. If you don't have an accountability partner, find one. Find somebody who will ask you the hard questions so that you can continue to live an even-if life where you know that God is able and that he will save you, but even if you will not worship anyone or anything but him. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up here. And I want to close out with one last picture, one last analogy. Now, I realize, <laughs> I realize that all analogies break down at some point or another. You guys have probably thought about that before when pastors give an analogy. Um, do, you, do you ever pick up a hitchhiker? Anybody? You ever pick up a hitchhiker? Yeah, some of you, some, most of the men, good. <laughs> what if... Go with me here. What if you saw, you're driving your car, you saw Jesus hitchhiking. He's standing out there on the side of the road with his thumb out, cardboard sign that says, God bless. <laughs> Maybe it says John 3.16. I don't know what Jesus would put on his sign. But you know, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I said, go with me here. Okay, you know it's Jesus. You pull over. Do you pick him up? I mean, it's it's. It's Jesus. It's really him. You get out. He shows you the nails, scarred hands. He, he, he knows your name. He knows the, your mother's main name. He knows the street that you grew up on. He knows everything about you. He tells you the number of hairs on your head. I'm like, okay, it's really him. Jesus, get in the trunk. Get in the trunk. Seriously, you open the trunk. Get in the trunk. Because I, I, I know that, that an emergency is going to come up, and there's going to be a time where I'm going to need you. So you, you push over the jumper cables. You, you push over the iron and the jack and, and, and the spare tire, and you say, get in. I'm going to need you. There's going to come a point where I'm going to have a spare tire, and I'm going to have a flat tire. I'm going to need you. Is that what we would do if we picked up Jesus hitchhiking? No, some of you are like, Pastor Eric, that's silly. Jesus, get in the back seat. I am an Uber driver. I will take you wherever you want to go. You like sushi? Let's go. Jesus, I'll drive you around. And some of you are like, no, that's silly. I'd let Jesus ride shotgun. And I would even give him control of the temperature gauge, of the radio. We can listen to Better Is One Day if you want. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I am so spiritual. I'm letting Jesus ride shotgun in my car. I didn't even sweep out the Cheerios that are ground into the floor. I just let him get in. Or would you give him the keys and say, Jesus, you drive. You're in control. I surrender my car to you, but I'm going to live in submission to you. And that means when he drives a little bit slower than you'd like, it's okay. When he turns left, but you want to go right, it's okay. Even if, wherever he goes, you're long for the ride. And better is one day in, in his presence, in your car, than a thousand elsewhere. 